Again, Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 14 and reading down to verse 21. This is just following the brothers. The twelve patriarchs have all returned and buried their father Jacob. And they have come back from burying him. And they're back in Egypt. And some fear falls over their brethren that now that their father has died, that there might be a chance Joseph is now going to seek revenge. He was just waiting until... Jacob was dead, and then Joseph's going to pounce and and try to get them back for what they had done to him. And so that's what our reading is going to entail this morning. Verse 14 says this, And Joseph returned into Egypt, he and his brethren, and all that went up with him to bury his father, after he had buried his father. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us, and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall you say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. For they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the, of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore fear ye not. I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. That'll conclude our reading this morning. And please forgive any mistakes that I may have made in the reading today. Uh, But the title of our message this morning is Full Fellowship Restored. Full Fellowship Restored. So for those of you that are just joining us this morning, or perhaps you've had to miss a couple of weeks, um, we have preached now, this is our fifth week on this subject, and I hope by the end of the day today, that we'll come to a conclusion on this subject. Um, But what we've been trying to get to is talking about forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness. And we've striven long and hard, and you've been patient as we've gone through the story of Joseph, and we've tried to assess from these texts, as the Lord would reveal it to us, different attributes of repentance, sin, The pains of sin, the scars of sin, our response to sin when we're traumatized by it, what true repentance looks like. And today we get to, to me, what would be the climax, the best part of it all. And that is forgiveness and the fellowship that was once lost being restored. Now, before we really begin and and jump into some of these thoughts this morning, um, I feel inclined to say this. Um, I speak to you this morning as one who has experienced forgiveness. And I suppose the further that I walk with the Lord, the more weight that I place on experience than what I used to. We have tried to bring before you these truths 
I believe them. I believe when exercised and carried out to the best of our abilities, that they impart to us something greater than can be understood. In other words, these truths applied and experienced are much more powerful than just perceived by our own minds. I, as I was considering this, uh, actually this morning, as I began to meditate upon what I was going to bring before you today, I became thankful for God's forgiveness. And that the very things that I'm going to share with you this morning are merely truths that I have experienced through God's forgiveness. And I don't mean that in a shallow fashion. I mean it for real. Um, God forgives us. And I want to get this morning to what the definition of forgiveness is. Because I think although we use that term often... As I began to consider this week what forgiveness is, the definition was more elusive than what I anticipated. But I think this is not some formal definition that I'm going to give you. This is one that after I began to study the scriptures and meditate upon this, one that I now feel comfortable sharing or saying. But forgiveness is a promise. Forgiveness is a promise... To never hold someone's sin against them ever again. So I want you to consider this morning, when you forgive somebody, when you're the recipient of forgiveness from someone else, or foremost, when God has divinely forgiven you, that there is a promise being made. And that promise is not to forget But it is to forget to hold that sin against you forever. It is forever banished. Never to return in its effect or in its divisive power to keep us separated from full fellowship. Now, as we've talked about, here is the very shallow and common process that is used, and I want you to hone in at the beginning of this message and really listen to what is very often substituted for the true process outlined in the scriptures that has a satisfying resolution versus what is today that perhaps we or others mistaken in place of the process of repentance and forgiveness. Very often, rather than repentance, an apology is made. A shallow, passive, verbal words in order to pacify both consciences is given. And then the offender, with no expectation for restitution, to when possible, restore what was taken when that is substituted when there are no fruits that are given then what generally occurs is false forgiveness or rather a 
verbal acknowledgement that somebody has made a verbal apology. And it generally says something like this. Oh, it's all right. It's okay. And not only is, are the words unsatisfactory, but the very tone and nature of how it is expressed in such a passive fashion expresses plainly that no forgiveness is truly being extended. And then finally, the worst result. Fellowship is never restored. True, deep fellowship is never given. That is a sorry substitute for the biblical process. Which oftentimes is initiated by confrontation. And we talked a little bit about that last week. That sometimes the offender is blinded by their own sin. And so it necessitates the offended or a third party to come along and say, you have sinned and it is disrupting our fellowship and it is separating you from the presence of God. And it is needful for you to make things right and to truly repent. And that rebuke, as Nathan did that before David, is often followed by a deep sense of sorrow, a realization and an acceptance that I have done wrong. And as we mentioned last week, not a casual turning away from the activity that I was indulging in, but a deep abhorrence, a hatred for the fact that I could ever live and act in a certain way and a deep commitment never to return to that way of life that I once indulged in. Or in other words, true repentance, a true turning away, prompted by a deep sorrow that is wrought in the heart of a person by God alone. And that when that repentance is truly performed, we know that from God's vantage point, he looks down and he sees our hearts. And he knows when a person has repented completely. But those actions, or excuse me, that state of heart will be demonstrated through actions. No different than when a person has truly been born again they will live a life that looks different than prior to being born again. In the same fashion, a person who has been saved and has sinned against somebody or has sinned against God, when they have repented, their actions, their attitudes, and their words will be discernibly different. And when that is the case, the offended party is instructed by the Scriptures To make a promise to that person. A promise that says, I will never dig up that which has now been buried. It is dead to me. And I am never going to hold you responsible. I'm never going to hang over your head this thing that you did. Anything short of that is not absolute forgiveness. 
I don't doubt that there are some questions that you might have. I'll say this before I go too far. Tonight, I want to talk about, when we come back this evening, some tough questions about forgiveness. Because sometimes things aren't so neat. So tonight, one of the things we're going to try to deal with is, what happens whenever somebody has sinned against you and then they die? And they can't repent anymore. What are we to do? What happens if somebody, as Jesus says, sins against you seven times 70, over and over and over and over? Does, are we allowed, if we truly forgive somebody, to still punish somebody? So tonight, we're going to deal with maybe some of the questions that as I talk about this are floating through your mind and saying, well, what about? Because sometimes just an overall blanket answer is not that easy. And so I hope that you will come back tonight and maybe listen to some of those, those questions. I want to read something to you this morning that I wrote. Sometimes when I feel like I cannot extemporaneously explain something, I write it down and I read it to you because I feel like it will be more clear. And so I hope this is very brief. A paragraph's length that says this. When we forgive someone, we promise to never use their sin against them. We promise that this sin will never be used to disrupt future fellowship. Now, please hear this part. Too often, people verbally extend forgiveness, but secretly dwell upon the sin. They stir up animosity and bitterness towards the, person, towards the quote, forgiven individual, unquote, by having private conversations and obsessively thinking about what the person has done. To forgive somebody and do that is sin. Very often, the person who reneges on their promise to forgive does more to harm the relationship and subsequent fellowship than the person who committed the original sin. Let us forgive like God does, once and for all. And I hope that you caught some of that. In other words, this. There are times when somebody has sinned against us in whatever, to whatever degree, and we say to them, I forgive you. It's okay. But in our hearts, we harbor bitterness and anger. And we think because we never expose that to the public, perhaps only to our spouse or our best friend, or our children, or whomever, because we keep it close to the vest. Or maybe it never makes its way outside of our mouths. Maybe we're mad at our spouse. We're mad at our best friend. And so we don't have that person that we can go to and talk about it with. But in our minds, we purposely stir up. We obsessively dwell upon what that person has done And we analyze all the pain and damage that their action has caused upon us. I want us to realize that if we do that, we are failing to uphold the promise that we have made in forgiveness. I want to pause for a moment. There's a difference in that. And the consequences of the person's sin still affecting us. Here's what I mean. There's a difference in an attitude in somebody that says, you know what? I do forgive you. But sometimes I cannot control that thoughts come back to me about what you did and the pain it caused. 
and I am fighting them. I am seeking to relinquish because our fallen nature is weak enough that sometimes we cannot forget when we desire to forget. Sometimes we cannot allow or or our emotions do not let go of what we have once seized upon. And yet, let me say this, just because our emotions are struggling to release the effects of that person sent upon us, that is different than purposely indulging or purposely holding on to what that person has done and stirring up bitterness in our own hearts. There's a difference in the two. One is seeking resolution. One is seeking peace. One is desiring not to be controlled by emotions, not waiting for the day that they can use that sin against the person when it becomes convenient in an argument. Whereas the other one is saying, you know what? I really want to let all my emotions pass aside, but I'm just having a hard time letting go. God can help our emotions to catch up with our promise. But very often it's the flip side. Very often we bitterly grasp anger. And we're, we're wanting that day to come where we can verbally let it out. And if that's the case, we have never forgiven the person in the first place. Or rather, we've, made, we've lied to them. Is what we've truly done. Is we've made a promise to forgive when forgiveness has never been extended. Forgiveness is not determined by emotions. Right? Because there are many people that if you waited until your emotions caused you to do something in the work of the Lord, you would never do it. I think many times people wait to obey the scriptures until they feel. And although we want to be led by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, we need to be very careful to discern that we're not waiting for our emotional desires to get behind what God has already commanded. Here, Joseph in our scripture text, I want to to read two scriptures before I do that. To back up this definition, I want to read a scripture in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. I think this is most of all what helped me to come to this conclusion about forgiveness. And perhaps that's something common to you. You already knew that, but it, I guess, struck me very revelatory. It says in verse 34, in this promise that's then repeated in the book of Hebrews, it says this, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least one of them, least of them, and the greatest of them, saith the Lord. Now listen to this, what God says. For I will forgive their iniquity... And I will remember their sin no more. Now, there are two different ways that we can interpret that verse. One is to believe, and some people do, and I'm not saying that this couldn't be possible, that God can intentionally forget something. That's a pretty great power, to be omniscient and choose to forget something. Can God do that? He certainly can, if I guess if he chose to. I don't know that that's what this is saying. To me, what this is saying is is he chooses not to remember their sin against them ever again. 
It's not that he is unaware or unfamiliar with what is being done, but that he has promised in all future judgment that nothing that was done will ever be accredited to that person's account to be used against them. That's a wonderful promise for all of us. Listen to me this morning. God has promised that no matter what anybody does, he has the power and, there, and more so the will to forgive that person of their sin and thereby promise, I will never use your sin as, as uh, many as sins has been committed, nor as vast or as damaging as that sin was, both to the person, to, the, to God, to his reputation, to others. God has the will and the power to forgive and never use it against us ever again. And praise God that we serve a God that forgives once and for all. Let me ask you this. Do you forgive the way God does? Because as I've gone through all of these scriptures, all of these weeks, the thing that keeps coming to my mind is this. Is this the way God does it? Because what we're wanting to do, both in our personal relationships as well as towards uh, those that we may not even know whose decisions affect our lives, is that we're wanting to emulate as much as possible doing things the way God does it. And since we live in a world of sin, listen, there, are, there is a group of people today that never accept that they live in a sinful world and every person they come in contact with, with, uh, uh, with is at some point and to some degree going to sin against them and hurt them. But listen, if you're here this morning and you are terrified to make relationships with people or you hold grudges against people far too long and far too often, I want you to know what Jesus taught us. And that is this. It is impossible, but that offenses will come. That's one of the terrible things about this place. The older I get, the more I am struck. And I don't know why it hits me fresh from time to time at how true the scriptures is when it describes this world and how sinful that it truly is. The longer I live and the more exposure that I have to the, de- the depth of sin and the pain and scars of its consequences, the more that my soul within me groans to be delivered from this body and sinful world of death. And yet... We're sojourners here. We have to be. We're in this wilderness for however long that God sees fit that we be here. And he has commanded us not to keep everybody at an arm's length. Not to separate and insulate ourselves and our children and everyone from the possibility that sin could ever hurt them. But rather it is when sin is affecting us that we learn how to come to grips with resolving and restoring fellowship with those we're commanded and desired to love. There is a depth I'm finding with relationships with people. There is this idealism that is projected out before us that whether it's a spouse or a child, whether it's a best friend, that we make acquaintance with this person and that acquaintance becomes friendship and that friendship may even extend further and that from that point forward, 
Only bliss awaits. But I would contend this. I would prefer to have a relationship with someone where what is ahead of us is not all bliss and happiness, agreement, but rather conflict, hardship, stress, pain, sin, and that we both seek to love each other to the extent that we would continuously repent and show grace to one another over and over and over because what I find is that much of the richness of my relationship with God is derived from the fact that I continuously sin over and over and over and yet God is faithful when I confess my sins to forgive me of my sins and thereby I learn a new and brighter dimension of his glory and his greatness because I see that in the plummeting and the terribleness of my sin God's grace abounds sufficient. That does not give me a license to sin. It rather makes me appreciate and desire deeper fellowship with the one who can extend deeper love to me in my sin. Your relationship with someone never has problems, never has pain, never has conflict. Do you really know the extent to which they love you? Is that really tested and tried or even deepened thereby? I would say no. I appreciate here Joseph. I love how he demonstrates some qualities of forgiveness that are, are, are very worth our note. So we already told you, he goes out, him and his brothers, they had made peace, supposedly, right? Everything was good. We go to chapter 45, everything had been worked out. He invited them. Now I want to to say something about the way Joseph, there's two things I want to point out about Joseph's forgiveness. All of these terrible things, and we labored greatly to demonstrate before you over multiple weeks, all of the terrible things that his brothers did, and also all of the scars that it left permanently upon him that that, that affected his life in ways that could have never been predicted prior to that. Joseph was forever altered moving forward. Then his brothers come and he requires them to jump through a number of hoops. That's kind of strange. The only comment I'll make about that is this. Because the question arises in my mind, why would Joseph do that? Why did Joseph not reveal himself, put their money back in their bags, put their money back in their bags a second time with the silver cup, require that their youngest son come to him? Why did he make them go through all of those actions? And I'll contend this morning, I believe it's to satisfactorily prove that they had truly repented of their sin. He wanted to see, he wanted to put them to the challenge. Don't just give me verbal agreement because you were in a desperate condition. Prove to me that you have truly repented of your sin. And then he just observed. What are they going to do? That's fair. It's fair when somebody has grossly sinned upon you to say, you know what? I want to see that you have truly willing to change. Through your repentance. 
Because God does not unconditionally forgive. He conditionally forgives. Predicated upon repentance. He has an all-seeing, omniscient eye where he can see the heart. We don't. And so sometimes we need to see. Show us. Show us that you have truly repented. Of your, that's what Joseph does. He, he does this not for himself. Right? He doesn't set all these slavish terms because he says, you know what? I want to make him know what it feels like. He doesn't sit in this elevated arrogant position and say, well, now I'm in power. Now I'm going to make you miserable in a similar fashion you made me miserable. He did not do any of those things for his good. He did it for their good. Because what he knew was this. What is in their best interest is to truly repent and make things right with God. That being the case, when they come and he finally reveals himself, they have repented for what they've done. It is evident to Joseph. He reveals himself. Here's something that is so striking and powerful to me. He extends forgiveness to them. And the impact of forgiveness, please hear this, is as though that the original sin had never occurred in the first place. Or in other words, he restored fellowship with them as though they had never done all the things that they had done. How do I know that? Imagine that Joseph had never had this experience back where, uh, back where he was living with his brothers, that some, some alternative way, he got to Egypt, he's at the very top, there has been no fallout with anybody, and then it's in the middle of a famine, and his brothers come into town, and they're saying, brother, we need your help, we're all going to die out here. What do you think that, his, that Joseph would do at this point beyond saying, I'm going to allow you to come to the most fertile area of Goshen. Your whole family is going to settle there. I'm going to take care of you and be kind to you. You have nothing to worry about the rest of your life because I love and care for you. You see, regardless of whether they had ever done what they had done, they were restored back to full fellowship once he forgave them. And it was as great as though they had never done anything in the first place. Here's what I'm wanting to say. When a person truly repents of their sin and we restore fellowship with them and we cut behind us what has done, what has been done, it can, it doesn't always, but we can have a fellowship with that person as if none of those things had ever transpired in the first place. God has to grant us that. But God can grant us that. You know how I know that? Because God does the same thing. When God looks down and sees you after you've truly repented of your sins, he doesn't have some label over your name that says, oh yeah, but here's the asterisk of all the bad things that they have done. God does not then put a limit on how deeply he's willing to fellowship with you because of things you've been forgiven for in the past. God is desirous and willing to have full Fellowship restored. You see, I think at times it would be very beneficial for those that are erring, those that are sinful and living out in sin to know two things. And I hope you know this about the way that God tells his church to function. If a person is resolute 
about sinning against God and forsaking his people and wants to violate God's clear commandments in his word and you're a member of this church, God has told us, God has commanded us that we cannot allow sin to be in this body unrepented of. And he lists in Corinthians and in other places in Colossians those things which we ought not to permit to be done in the house of God. And there are two very important things, and that is this. We are going to censure. We're going to exclude those. We're going to, uh, uh, we're going to remove those from our body or cut away those who are determined to continue to live in sin. But that fact should only be balanced by the fact of this. When a person genuinely repents of their sin and comes back genuinely repentant for what they have done, that we will restore you fully back to not only our public fellowship, but our private fellowship as well. I want to say this. We don't need to harbor sin in the church and hope that sometimes they'll just find their way. That's not the way God designed it. All we do very often when we tolerate sin is we deepen that person's commitment to continue to live in it because they're deceived in the fact that they can live one way and appear a different way. That is not the case. Here, Joseph, he restores his brothers completely. Here's the other thing that he does that is noteworthy, and that's why we read the scripture text this morning in chapters 50, verses 14 through 21. From chapter 45 to chapter 50, Joseph never brings it up again. He never brings up what they did. But after their father's death, they bring it up. And they say, please. First, what they do is they're afraid. So they send a servant to him to plead for forgiveness. And then at some point, they come to him themselves. And they get upon their knees and they begin to plead for forgiveness. And notice what Joseph says. Stop. Don't bring that up anymore. It's dead. What you did was forgiven, and when I forgave you, I meant it. It is done, and Joseph is weeping because he is saying, I have cast that sin, although this is not a a thing that we find in the Bible. I have cast that sin in the sea of forgetfulness. It is dead to me. I no longer hold you responsible for what you have done, even though you're the one bringing it up. And listen, very often that is the case. When someone has committed a terrible sin, they live for the rest of their life with this deep sense of guilt. I believe the Apostle Paul was one of those who thought about his former life and it often caused him both on his own when he was just thinking as well as whenever he was reciting certain truths to those that he wrote to. He could not help but those things bubble up and he felt this deep sense of shame and guilt. For what he had done to those people. And yet Joseph says, stop it. Stop it. It's dead. Don't you bring that up in order to separate the two of us. I'll say to this to people who often are controlled by guilt. There's one fundamental question that you have to ask. And that is this. Have I truly been forgiven? 
If God has forgiven you for sin, that sin is dead. Don't let Satan, one of his most powerful ploys that he uses to sabotage Christians is that he brings up things from former days in order to prevent them from obeying and following God today. Because they think, how am I ever going to be able to get this weight or this stigma off of me? And yet what I have found very often is that those same people who are burdened down with a deep sense of guilt because of the sins they have permitted, God's desire is to turn their redemption into a picture of the greatness of God because it shows that God can forgive and cleanse anybody no matter how significant their sin once was. My favorite stories in all the scriptures and in all of history is reading about wicked, terrible men and women who did awful things, but they come to a point in their life where they plead with God for forgiveness and he extends it. And then from that moment on, they are some of the most fruitful people who have ever walked the face of the earth. God has this miraculous power to even use our sin for his glory. Don't steal that opportunity from God to do that. Whatever your sin might have been, whatever your sin might presently be, a lifestyle, a hidden sin, don't allow Satan to convince you that now forever I am marred and God can never use it. And I think churches have far too often and people have far too often shied away from scandalous big sin because they say, I don't, I don't want to touch it. And yet the reality is it's often in those very things that God is desirous to demonstrate to the world just how great his forgiveness is offered to all. Joseph, this is brought up again. And Joseph says, I don't want to hear it. I want to say this before I'm done this morning. This just comes to my mind. thought about it a lot over the last few weeks, not in this line of thought, but I want to share it this morning. What often prevents what often prevents people from confronting their offender? From genuinely repenting and from extending forgiveness is one thing. And that is pride. Very often, whether we recognize it or not, This terrible thing which besets us. This pride in your heart and in my heart. Sometimes the voice of pride sounds like this. They've wronged you and you can't stop obsessing about it. But what if you go to them and they don't hear you? Then you're going to be embarrassed. So I better not go at all. I better just stew. I better just fake fellowship with them. And all it is is the voice of pride talking. What about repentance? Here's what I know about repentance that I tried to relate last week. It is so ugly. It's really ugly. Repentance is. And when I repent, and when I have with no, 
what am I wanting to say here? With no disclaimer, repenting to somebody. Can you get more vulnerable when you're an adult? When you don't want somebody to pacify you. When you don't want to just get the situation over with. I mean where you have done wrong. And you are broken because of your wrong. I would venture to say most people don't know what I'm talking about because most people don't truly repent to one another. And that's a shame, isn't it? But perhaps you have an idiosyncrasy about you. Something that has for years perpetually caused division in your marriage. In a friendship. And you know you do it. But the voice of pride says to you, yeah, but if I say that, they win. I'm admitting that they were right all along. And when we would spar back and forth. And I don't want to suffer that humiliation. Pride. And so here's what I would say often happens is that a degree of fellowship is restored. But not full fellowship is restored. Because listen to me this morning. There is something... When a person has transgressed, I'll give you an example of this, and I've shared this example before. When I went to Africa one time, some of my belongings, some of the belongings of those that went with me was stolen. It was stolen by a church member, the church over there. And to us, it was no big deal. Maybe a couple hundred dollars, maybe $300 in value total. He was responsible for staying there and watching all of our stuff. And when we got back, he was gone. All of our, a lot of our stuff was taken. A year passed. That man went to Libya. We were in Ghana. If you don't know where Ghana to Libya is, it's a long way away. He joined a group of thugs. And he went up there, and I think there was somewhere around 30 to 35 men that went with him. You may remember just a few years ago that there was some stuff happening in Libya. Well, he got among all that stuff. And over half of the men that he was with died. So he travels back from Libya to Ghana in the next year. And we got there. The same three men that who had gone the year before were the same three men that were back. And he came to us. And I was quite surprised to see him. And here's what he did. He got on his knees in front of us. And he was weeping. And through a translator, he began to tell us how wrong it was what we had done. And here were the powerful words he said. If you never forgive me, I understand. And yet the display was not over. It became even more powerful to me. At that moment in this... Now here's when this took place. There's three of us here. We're coming over here to teach a minister in deacons conference. He came when all the ministers and deacons were there. 40, 50 men, including us, are there. And he comes in the middle of that meeting. 
and bows in front of us and pleads with us for forgiveness. And then one of the deacons there came up next to him and said this, he was one of us. And if he has wronged you, we have all wronged you. And one by one, they came and got upon their knees in tears and began to ask us for our forgiveness. Friends, that's repentance. You see? That's true repentance. Was any of that necessary? Absolutely not. But repentance does not cling to any, even the least degree of pride. Repentance says this, I will do anything to make things right. The voice of pride lingers at the prospects of repentance. And oftentimes just becomes a bystander. Contemplating possibly doing it. But listen, if it's been a while since you have repented to anybody, including God, then there's likely a reason why you're feeling isolated both from God and from other people. Because repentance to the Christian life ought to be a common occurrence. Why? Because we're full of sin and we offend people. It's impossible that it's going to come. If repentance was exercised regularly, we would naturally be a more humble people. Because it would forbid us from being so focused upon our our rights and our righteousness. Because we would be so affected by the pain that our sin has caused upon other people. And then very often, here's the last one. Pride prevents Forgiveness. Pride forgets, forget, or permits, does not permit forgiveness very often. Here's a number of reasons why. One, when these men were doing this, I've never felt more strange in my entire life. I mean, really. Have you had anybody bow at your feet or a number of people bow at your feet and plead for your forgiveness? I didn't need that. In my own heart, I had forgiven them a year earlier. I didn't need this big display. And yet, here's what I knew. It was necessary for him. That sounds harsh and it sounds self-righteous, but it's not. He needed that. Because there, in that embarrassment and pain, do you know what God can do in that? Cause him to never do that again. You know what I didn't do? Hurry up and get up. It's fine. Let's get over with this. Rather, when he was ready, and when he was done, and he got up, I embraced him. And I said, brother, I forgive you. Keep your head up. And don't ever put it down in my presence again. Was that weird? It was. Do you know why it was weird? Not because it wasn't right, because it wasn't routine. Because I don't do it often. Probably very often just wants me to get over with it. 
Talking to married couples, whenever I counsel married couples occasionally, here's one thing I'll tell them. People boast about never fighting with their spouse. Fighting is a good thing if you fight fair. Really. If you don't fight in your marriage, then you don't have a very good marriage. Two sinners trying to become as one as possible and accomplish the glory of God through the rearing of our children, through the, all the things that are required of us in a mar- as a married couple. But very often, people don't fight because they don't want to go through the process of being embarrassed, repenting, asking for forgiveness, and forgiving somebody. They just want to skip over all that. So what they do is this. They pretend like when their spouse does something wrong, they separate from their spouse for a day or two, three days, four days, however bad the injury was. And then they just pick up one day as if nothing ever occurred. But then here's what happens. Resentment builds over years and years and years. And whether it ever boils over or not, it slowly creates a wedge between the fellowship that you can enjoy with one another. And suddenly, the man and the wife are living almost two completely separate lives, but they're just roommates. All in order to avoid genuine humility, repentance, and forgiveness. Don't let this be you. You know what oftentimes, and I'll begin to close with this. You know what oftentimes prompts repentance in others? The display of it in you. It has often been said, probably behind this pulpit, though I don't remember saying this. If lost people saw God's people repenting publicly more often, there would be a more likely chance they would follow after our pattern. Don't you think? Going back to the beginning of our message, there's something about seeing these biblical truths displayed and lived out and experienced that gives more power than hearing them talked about. Has this church, have you in church ever seen somebody truly repent of their sins before the congregation? I mean, come before this body of people and plead and confess. Confession is often a taboo thing because it it implies this lowering of oneself to another. Absolutely, that's what it is. And rightly so. When a person has sinned, they ought to humble and lower themselves before those whom they have sinned. It's a powerful thing when you've been in the house of the Lord. There's two differences. You know, whenever a person has gone out and lived in sin, and they come back to the church, perhaps they've been excluded from the church, and they come back, perhaps they haven't been excluded from the church, and they come back, and they say something to the nature of, well, I've done a few things wrong. Will you forgive me? I know we hit on this last week. There's a difference in that. Somebody who comes truly broken of their sin and says, if you don't forgive me, I understand. That's genuine repentance. Those people, I want them back, don't you? I mean, don't you? Don't you want back people who at one time felt led to be here but went astray? Because I know I can be just like them. I would not put it past me and I would not put it past you to go astray at some point, both in our young age or perhaps in your older age. Any of us could do that. 
And yet, if they're really willing to make it right with God, I want their full fellowship as much as we can have it. I'm thankful today, and I'm going to close. I wrote this thing, I wrote this down. I don't know if it's to your good or not. Well, I hope it has been. Six things out of these five messages that have really impacted me, that I hope have impacted you. Here are six takeaways that you can have. We should forgive as Christ does after repentance has occurred, not before. The consequences of sin are greater than what we can presently see. Sin's pain and scars are deep and real and often make an indelible mark on those we sin against. Even in trauma... We are accountable to God for our actions and for our reactions. Number five, true repentance has fruit. And number six, finally, forgiveness is a promise never to use their sin, that sin, against someone. This morning, again, I I hope... If you'll come back this evening, I would encourage you to. There are some difficult situations or things that may require a little asterisk. And some of the things that we just said that we'll try to address tonight, I would encourage you to come back. I hope there are two major things you have gleaned. Number one, this is a way that God has given us to learn how to function in this world of sin. It is a necessary process that we must go through over and over and over. And secondly, and even greater, this is how God forgives us. This is how God forgives the whole world. And I pray that in light of these truths from the story of Joseph, you would be moved in your heart to gratitude. That even though we have repetitively wounded God, When we come to him in true repentance, he is faithful to forgive us until our very last breath. And then he has made provisions to where we will never need forgiveness again. It's a wonderful hope that we have that we can look forward to a day where everything that I have brought before you never has to be exercised again. God will offer that to us in heaven. And that's part of the hope of heaven is that very thing. I hope you found it beneficial these last few weeks. Certainly have made an impact on my heart.